Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. I'm joined today by Tom Adams, who is one of the founders of Pedago and is now heading up the activity of Quantic graduate programs. Business school is one of the things we'll be talking about. He's also got a really fascinating background, which we'll hear about in a bit. But Tom, welcome to Trending in Education. Oh, thank you. Delighted to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a fun conversation, I'm hoping. Absolutely. And your background, no small feat prior to Quantic involving a company called Rosetta Stone. I'd rather hear from you than me. So obviously I got into e-learning through Rosetta Stone. I joined it back in the early days of the company and I was CEO there for a while, built it into a public company and, you know, sort of built maybe one of the first important brands in education technology, you could say. And then about 10 years ago, I set out to essentially take some of the learning from that experience and transport that to other domains of learning. And we've looked at how could you teach more effectively, you know, business education? How could you do a more effective coding education? And so we started to apply that and we rolled that out, you know, over the past several years. And there's more magic to what we're doing. But big picture, that's kind of how we transitioned from Rosetta Stone into what I'm doing now. That's amazing stuff. And Rosetta Stone, for folks who may not be familiar. Yeah, I think Rosetta Stone was novel in that it really tried to bring the best pedagogy of the real world to technology. And that sounds like an obvious thing to do, but most people don't bother doing that. And so what we knew was that teaching people without translation, without grammar explanation was actually more effective than piling on things like that. So we taught in the language the same way you would learn in a country. And by having that approach, we taught more effectively. We had more delighted students. People were able to sort of learn more naturally. And that was something that was successful. Yeah. And so when you think of that, it's really about interactivity. It's about putting something in front of someone and essentially allowing the machine to come up with responses that are relevant and get the person to correct their hypothesis, to maybe reinforce their hypothesis when they were in the interaction. Very much like at Rosetta Stone, within Quantic, uh, students are interacting or making a decision every eight seconds. Hmm. So it's unlike any of the MOOCs, we really see ourselves as a very different category from them because they're very video reliant. And so they are very much in the business uh, conveying information. Whereas we are very much in the sphere of, you know, how can we create situations that the student is navigating around and making choices and then giving them feedback. And the higher the frequency of feedback, the more we're able to really hone the mental model, as we call it. That's, That's amazing. Of, yeah, the eight seconds is surprising to me. That's a lot of decisions. That's a lot of honing that the learner is doing. Yeah. And so that's been very much one of the challenges for us in creating programs within our framework has been, how do you create essentially a stimuli, a, a situation, a story, mm. and then get the person to make a choice within that? And how do you have enough variety of choices so that the student stays engaged and finds it fun and delightful? Mm. Mm. But we've done that for a whole master's degree. And now that it's more systematic, we're rolling that out and we're rolling out a number of other technologies that, let's say, leverage AI, because that, again, mm -hmm. affords us this ability to provide more interactivity. We think interactive is like organic is to the food industry. We'll mm -hmm. soon talk about 
interactive learning and the non-interactive being, let's say, everybody else. And interactive will have to be defined something like every eight seconds. Wow. And the quizzes at the end of, let's say, a five-minute video just won't be in that category of interactive. That's fascinating. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, again, showing my age, it takes me a little bit back to Choose Your Own Adventure books where every page you would have to make a decision and it would branch the experience and take you to something different. And I do remember very positively, it makes me lean in because I don't really know what's coming next. And then you mentioned also the power of surprise and delight and, you know, building that motivation and engagement. Because I imagine this is not, is this instructor-led or this is all, you know, quote-unquote asynchronous? Yeah, so so right now it's very asynchronous, but obviously with AI, there's the opportunity to essentially allow for moderation of conversations to occur. And we're doing a bunch of things, leveraging that technology to essentially make it akin to having, you know, a live instructor moderating a conversation. Yeah, and that's the stuff that's pretty wild nowadays too, like the generative AI, as it starts to lean into the learning ecosystem, is really a fascinating space. But if I'm hearing you right, you're focused on the interactive piece. I could see that, you know, knitting in with emerging AI to almost amplify the mode, you know, really allow yes, for better exactly. interactive to start to come so we think so, so we think that interactive is the senior concept and that essentially a bunch of technology, including AI you know, obviously user experience design, all sorts of aspects sort of bring to bear the strategy of interactive. And that's how we craft our innovation in learning. Yeah. And it, you know, immediately takes me to the new Apple vision goggles and spatial computing, which is clearly going to be more interactive. That's amazing. And then what led you to land with business education as the domain to focus on? First? Yeah, so we looked at a number of domains and we have actually created mathematics and physics curricula for refugees. So we have certainly developed a ton of learning experiences beyond business. But I think why we chose business was that it's actually an interesting subject to work with, given that it has both hard subjects and soft subjects. And so we're both having to teach things like economics and finance, statistics, subjects where there are mathematical operations or there's a right and wrong, and also teach aspects that are more soft, where maybe there is a framework that we need to get you to understand, but also we want to explore more about different ways to think about issues when it's not as clear what the right answer might be. Yeah. Makes sense. And then the skills required of a business education are in the midst of a disruption cycle right now. There's a lot of questioning of the traditional model of business school. I'd love to get a little bit of your thinking there where, you know, the MBA as the holy grail of business education, as opposed to certificates and competencies, any thoughts on that? So I think the MBA is still the most valuable education on earth. You sort of see it in the results. So students Mm. get recruited very heavily. They get incredible signing bonuses. There is no higher salary, you could almost say. You'd you'd have to be a sort of AI specialist with very advanced skills Mm. to command the same sort of salary. And MBAs are not, you know, the most skilled in many ways, and they're more generalists. So it's a phenomenal education, incredible outcomes. You meet any MBA from Stanford or Harvard or, 
you know, those types of schools, it is evident that they are on a leadership track and that they are beneficiaries of that education. It's still relevant because it's generalist education never goes out of style. Right. That type of education continues to evolve and so on. But obviously there's more opportunity to deliver on-demand education through certificate-based courses. The issue that we see with certificate-based courses is that as long as you believe that education is essentially a solo activity, mm. it's quite easy to put that together, but we don't. We think mm. learning is social, peer-based. We set up cohorts and we find that our students really love studying with other people that are very similar to them and have, let's say, a diversity as well. And we're building executive education courses that will be, let's say, much more accessible for people. And we're excited about that. But we're sort of thinking about it again as a cohort-based experience. The library model, let's say, that many of the MOOCs had initially, some maybe have moved away from it, but where you would sort of pick up a course and just do it asynchronously on your own. Right. We think that has a limited applicability in the space of business education. It's not engaging. There's no value so much in the certificate that you get at the end of it. It's not, doesn't say much about you that you got, you know, a certificate of accounting from, you know, any given MOOC. So was it selective getting in? Was it hard to matriculate? Did you have to have, you know, a minimum level of proficiency in the subject? Did you do group projects with other students of your ilk? Business schools succeed, the old ones, I mean, because they essentially have a level of social learning that is very, very powerful. And obviously, people who go through a social learning experience in a business school context are able to then transfer that to the workplace. Right. Yeah. I also, I am a fan of technical education, obviously, and we have created two master's degrees that are going to be launched in the early part of next year. The chief social aspect is working on projects. And so some of the MOOCs have, I think, seized on that and have done a decent mm -hmm. job of doing projects within their overall learning path. So through all of this, you can see that there's a lot of disruption happening out there in the world of work. How can business education keep up? I imagine part of the benefit of a new entry is that you're almost designed to be responsive, but what's the right mindset for someone who's running a business education program to really keep up with this accelerated rate of change that we're living in? Yeah. So I think that from our perspective, we're able to obviously develop very current teaching strategy courses. We're working on, you know, we have a blockchain course. We are on the cusp of releasing our AI courses. And it's obviously AI for managers because we see that as a sort of core need is for managers to sort of sort out how to think about this technology, how to make decisions because it's going to affect absolutely everybody. The other aspect is obviously we have AI courses for technical education for those who want it. But most people are able to sort of learn, you know, core aspects of these technologies just by using them. And so really it's about teaching sort of much more timeless concepts of innovation and how to think about integrating different aspects and how to handle change management. Those things are sort of timeless. And we find that many people are struggling still with, you know, oh my goodness, this AI thing is really jettisoning a lot of the things that I used to be able to sort of lean on in my business model 
What do right. I do? Right. And those are probably the most important questions for executives. And so we focus on that. I think that we will continue to drive innovation in the curriculum. But frankly, I think most of the value that we bring is making people have access to quality in business education. Distance-based learning historically hasn't had the same quality as on-site education. So, so few of us that have had the experience of the on-site MBA would sort of say that the distance-based ones are a true substitute. And we are probably the most innovative in the category, and therefore we're very much on track to, to deliver that kind of new value for students. Absolutely. And this sounds similar to Rosetta Stone in some ways where the D word disruption can come into the conversation a bit in that classic Clayton Christensen definition of the word where a new entry comes in and is able to really upend the market and start to do some really transformational things. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on the disruptive yeah. power of your model. So I think that there's really two aspects to disruption. One is, you know, do you hurt the incumbents? And then the other one is, are you creating new markets? Yeah. And most of what we're doing is really creating new markets. There's mm -hmm. no change fundamentally in the demand for MBAs from, let's say, the 20-somethings. And there's no change in the demand from consulting companies, from, you know, the big tech companies for those types of graduates. Yeah. So we're not disrupting at the sort of, we're hurting the incumbent. It's much more about bringing new people in. A lot of people have studied computer science, bioscience, other such advanced engineering and scientific degrees. They've started to make progress in their career. They get into their early 30s. And suddenly they're being tasked with developing more strategic business plans. Yep and working at Google or, or whatever. And what a lot of our students are folks that, let's say, went to a top engineering school. They work in a great technology company, but what they want is to essentially elevate themselves in their organization. And they yeah. need to understand the basic framing of business decision-making. Mm -hmm. And so they come to us and we, we give them a lot of new skills, a lot of peers in terms of classmates and the alumni. And then we also provide them obviously with chances to develop business plans and projects that are very close to what they need to be capable at within their organizations. And they have tremendous results. And we sort of see it in, in the feedback we get from them. And also obviously in our surveys where they report, I think very impressive salary increases and promotions. Yeah. So it's a pathway to more of a leadership position for folks who might have a deeper domain expertise, at least as one profile that's out there that really hasn't had an accessible solution like what you're providing. Do you see other similar markets? Because it does feel like the promise of online education going as far back as when Rosetta Stone was out there is that it will be a way to level access and provide more pathways. So providing access, I think, is fundamental to what we're working towards. I would say at the same time that I think that where we are different than many other online or distance learning institutions is that what we're trying to recognize is that learning is a community activity. Mm -hmm. Once you do selectivity on the way in and you sort of try to get people to be in a peer group, it creates its community 
And we're very protective of that. So we launched a school last year called Valor that has a slightly different admission practice than Quantic. We look more for, let's say, elements of attitude. You know, do they have a leadership trait? Hmm. And we're less, let's say, on the quantitative side, which we ah. might be in Quantic, hmm. really trying to, let's say, invite in the sort of Silicon Valley types from around the world to sort of join in that school. And so with Valor, we're really exploring this new opportunity for us to impact managers that, let's say, may have a lot of people who work for them, but maybe they're not, you know, very high scoring on a GMAT, uh, you might say. Mm -hmm. uh, but we still think that they're ter terrific and they have a high impact in their companies. Yeah. Makes sense. And then, you know, you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to hear a little more about how you build in some of the interpersonal social dynamics that are what a lot of the folks I know who went to business school talk about the value is, you know, the values in part in the network and the bonding and the connections that they've had. How do you build yeah. that into an online program? Yeah, so obviously it's cool. So one of the things which students are able to do is see each other's profiles. When you apply to our school, you're effectively building a very rich profile of your achievements and your goals, your personal goals. We have a map with everyone's sort of geo position on it. And so you can sort of see if you're traveling to a city, you know, what classmates are in Seattle yeah. uh, at this time. So students take advantage of that. And then we run events all the time in different cities around the world where students are able to congregate. We also have conferences that are global where students fly in multiple times a year. We probably run one of those every single month at this time now. And those can be hosted in Singapore. They can be in Copenhagen, San Francisco, in lots of different places around the world. And that gives students not just the opportunity to learn, but they form stronger bonds. And many of them sort of coordinate to be at the same global conferences together. And they're learning conferences, obviously, with a lot of activity. Yeah. Yeah. And then we touched on it a bit as well, but I'd be curious how you're thinking about the future of work and how... The disruptions perhaps are beyond business education. If you look more broadly at the way organizations operate and the way we think about the humans who power those organizations, not to mention artificial intelligence. I think that there's a, a couple of things. One is that I think that AI, especially, and generative AI, maybe most of all, is really threatening of certain professions. Some people who've been making a living creating a certain type of content I think that they will see less demand for what they do. So that's on the sort of glass half empty side, but mostly I'm glass half full. And so I think that the amount of content generation, the lower cost of content generation is going to allow us to create communities and engagement around topics that maybe didn't get so much engagement before. We're very involved in this ourselves. We've rolled out something called Quantic Insight, which is essentially a news channel that goes through TikTok. And a lot of that content is originated from generative AI. So we're crawling and finding great articles, great things to, to sort of have conversations about. And so that creates new opportunities for interaction that we didn't have before. And I think that that's illustrative of what it's like for most people. In other words, at first we fear a new technology. At first, we just see how it's going to eliminate jobs. Obviously, we don't have travel agents so much. Right. Somehow, you know, just like travel agents were disrupted, but I would guess that more people work in travel today than used to. 
It's just that they don't work in administering booking of tickets. They work in other aspects of travel. I think the same will happen here. And, you know, will we see every single person come out ahead from this disruption? I can't promise that. But I think humanity as a whole is going to do incredibly well. And I've never been more enthusiastic about a technology before. You know, really think for education, especially, this is going to make the opportunity for students to learn, to discuss, to explore. It's just going to be at a whole different level. And so I have to presume that the next generation will be more educated thanks to AI, because if they use tools enabled by AI, they will learn much faster mm. and they will learn much more richly. So I'm very gung-ho. If your job was to sort of essentially publish passive content, yeah, and be uh, as, as good a, a line of work as it used to be. Yeah. But if it's interactive, if it's niche, I still think it will be, there'll be a need for it. Yeah. And you're talking about interactive. It immediately brings me to gaming and other modes of, you know, what other platforms? It's almost like what you're describing is less analogous to streaming media, watching TV, leaning back, and it's more analogous to leaning in and engaging in a game. I'd love to get some of your perspective on how that industry has been evolving and that as a potential parallel to the education industry. So obviously, in some regards, education is a gamification. We study hard to get a degree, which is kind of a badge. Yeah. And so many of us have sort of thought about it as a gamification that, let's say, has different words. But yeah, it's a way to motivate people and to give recognition and status. And there's lots of that, not just within higher ed, but you can sort of see it within associations, within you know educational environments as a whole. And so gaming, I think used to be much more about gratification and sort of giving you sugar highs along the journey. Education is much more about progression. So humans love to learn. And so we have to learn to learn. And then we learn another thing because we learned that thing. And so our gamification framework is much more built on that insight, which is that it's not gaming per se. It's not just points. We're not running around you know, for 16 years of our life trying to pick up points. But we do it and we're motivated and we want to get ahead and we actually like to learn. It's very satisfying. So yeah. I think a lot of gaming companies will bring good ideas to the space, but very often people sort of take a technology for technology's sake sort of approach and education has its nuances. And if you don't respect them, you know, it's not easy to, to make it work. Yeah. And then beyond business education, it sounds like the model you have with Pedago is designed in part to transform different domains beyond business. Any thoughts on other areas or where the vision is in terms of expanding beyond business education? Yeah. So I think we're going to be very broad. And the reason is I think that we have a holistic approach. We use the right technology for the right problem. And so, you know, in mathematics, when we're doing that type of instruction, and right now we're doing it very much more in a third world context on smartphones, but we're able to leverage, let's say, approaches that we developed maybe for teaching statistics in the MBA to teaching calculus or arithmetic or algebra for younger grades. And so I think, you know, 
I would say that there's really two big classes we think about. One is what we would call didactic learning, which is, let's say, anything that's mathematical, formulaic, if this, then that. And then there's Socratic, which is really just teaching you how to think Mm. and how to reason within a domain. And we've been working hard at both. The didactic is sort of demonstrated out in the wild to be successful in our approach. And Socratic was getting very far along on it. You know, we're really excited about obviously what's going on with AI and all of that opportunity. Amazing stuff here with Tom Adams, who's one of the co-founders of Pedago, who is creating Quantic. We'll have links to all of this on the show notes. We're about to wrap up here with you, Tom. Thanks again for the time you've been able to grant us. Any concluding thoughts as our listeners go back to the rest of their lives? Well, I mean, all I would say is that this is the best time in education. It's going to be challenging for many of us, but the next two years are going to be really exciting. A lot of new technologies coming in. A lot of the passive learning models will fall by the wayside. So I believe this is the time for interactive and anyone who's got good startup ideas and good learning approach ideas is going to have a field day over the next several years. It's never been a better time to try to change this very important aspect of our lives. Amazing stuff with Tom Adams. You heard it here first, interactive. There's a golden age where just start to realize it. Check out what Tom and team have going on. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. All right. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. (laughs) 